happy to hear it. We are attempting to translate the sermons on Sunday into Spanish. Now, there may be a few weeks where this uh, doesn't happen, but we're trying. And today happens to be day one. So uh, hang, hang with us. Uh, Justin uh, Maine, he went to Costa Rica once, and so he <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit more intense than that. <laughs> Justin is actually, actually fluent, but he's never been trained in, in translation. And so uh, anyways, uh, Justin and I will read the scripture, and then we'll begin. And if there's a moment where we have to pause, you'll, you'll know why, but... Um, our Hispanic service brothers and sisters, we love you, and we are so, man, we're better together than we are apart, and so thank you for being here this morning. Um, we love you. Yeah. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read uh, not the whole chapter. We'll read the first seven verses, and then we'll read the last four. Okay, deal? I don't, I don't see any obstruction, so let's go. Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, or if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. And its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now that's verse 7. Let's jump to chapter 20. There's a lot of good stuff in between verse 7 and verse 20. Check that out, okay? But for now, jump into verse 20. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. I'm going to repeat this one because this is the verse we're going to hang on this morning, okay? And the Lord God, let your imagination run wild with this one, okay? And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of the Lord? God banished, uh, whoa, whoa, where am I at now? Fruit from the tree of life and eat it. If they do that, they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, indeed. So, 
I love this passage, these passages of Scripture. This whole section, this whole narrative, Genesis 1 through 11, I love it, gives us vivid images of the beginning of God's creation. So can you imagine with me the Garden of Eden before the introduction of evil? Can you imagine? What did the Garden of Eden look like before Adam and Eve participated in evil? Every plant, every blade of grass, every drop of water. I like to imagine that every one of those things meticulously placed for conversation with each other. To be in relationship with one another. As the blades of grass converse with the water and the water converses with the sun. There's a sort of relationship, right? An osmosis, I believe. This is how God created the world to be. How marvelous and wonderful God's first creation was and even is today. How many people love going to Colorado simply because of nature? Yeah, there's five of us that love God's creation out there. <laughs> no, we love nature. You just go to other places. God created, I'm convinced, God created the world out of his love for us, out of his Hope to have perfect union with us, all of creation, having relationship and conversation with one another. For what? For enjoyment. I believe God enjoys us. I believe God enjoys his creation. And in the garden, there wasn't, there wasn't any need to start over because everything was at peace and everything was perfect and everything was ahead of Adam and Eve. There was no reset button. There was no rearview mirror, no need to go back and to begin again because everything was perfect just the way. Can you imagine? Maybe not. Okay. Before the fall of humankind, there was only genuine and unobstructed relationship, perfect union in all things. So here's a question my professor asked in seminary. And ask again in his commentary on the book of Genesis. So if everything God created was good, then what happened? If everything was perfect and in relationship with one another, when was the last time, Steve, you went outside to have a conversation with a blade of grass? What happened? <laughs> when was the last time, Ron, you enjoyed the company of mosquitoes? If everything God created, what, what happened? I love, I love that question. I find Psalm 78, 32 to be one of the most distinct definitions of evil in the Bible to answer this question. I find Psalm 78, 32 to be a pretty clear-cut answer to what happened. Here's what it says out of the New Living Translation, despite God's wonders. They refused to trust him. One more time. Despite God's wonders, imagine the Garden of Eden before the fall, how wonderful it must have been. So what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Misplaced trust happened. Adam and Eve placed their trust in themselves, and they suffered the consequences of their actions, which was a separation 
from the very perfect place that God had created, a perfect union that they had with God, they were separated from Him. And it's important for us, KPE, to, to know the consequences of evil, to know this separation. But just out of show of hands, some of you may have never heard this story before, but for those of you that have heard this story, just out of show of hands, how many times has the point of this story been that God was separated from humankind? Yeah, yeah. And I believe it's probably been more often than the people that actually answered that question. We tend to focus on the consequences of evil. Human beings sinned, so now you're separated. Well, that's true. That's true. But it's also extremely important for us to pay attention to how we view the character of God in this narrative. So let me ask you that question, okay? When you think of the banishment of Adam and Eve, how do you picture God? So I'm just going to come to you. Just think about it. When you think of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden, the cherubim being put up, and then being cast east of Eden, giving way to John Steinbeck's incredible novel, how do you picture God? Is he loving? Is he like Nate with his baby over here? Seriously, though, is he? Picture the God of Eden. We've all heard this story. We've all put black on our bracelet when we made those evangelistic bracelets in VBS. And we all used this scripture when we put black on our bracelet. How many of us began to associate the dark color of evil with God the Father? So is God loving? Is God happy? Is God joyful? Or is God angry? Is God the opposite of Nate and Shia? Oh. So if God created everything good, right? Sorry, man, I'm going to embarrass you. You're getting on Instagram right now, and the pastor's talking about you all at the same time. <laughs> You're popular, man, the paparazzi. <laughs> so if God created life to look like this, and if you're on the part of sanctuary, you can't see this. This is the most precious thing I've ever seen, okay? It's Nate and his, and his how old is Shia? Six months? Or three? Or three months, yeah. <laughs> three. Okay. People like to be older than what they are until they reach, like, what, 25, and then it's no longer cool. But So if God created everything like this, what happened? What happened if God is great and grand, but yet the moment we get to Genesis 3, we have a panic attack and close the Bible and throw it in the trash? What happened? I think it's a great question. So if God created everything good, what happened to God when everything went bad? <laughs> that first question was Joe's question, but that question, that's my question. That's a good one. <laughs> Pat myself on the back. So if God created everything good, what happened to God when everything went bad? Here's what I want to suggest this morning, and it's kind of silly, but go with me. I think that when everything went bad, God went 
to the sewing machine. <laughs> he went to the sewing machine. What? What? Do you mean? what? Yeah, when everything goes bad, where does God go? God goes to the sewing machine to make provisions to start over. So it's this morning. This morning. It's a little crazy of an introduction, but it's this morning. It's my privilege to introduce us to the next six weeks of what we'll be discussing here at New Beginnings. And that is a series on clothes. We're going to be talking about clothes for six weeks. And today, we're talking about God as our tailor, as our seamstress, about God as sewing clothes for the act of starting over. This morning, I want to talk to you about starting over. The rest of this series, in the next five weeks after this one, we'll explore the truth that we're made a new creation in Christ. And we're going to do this by taking a look at the various stories and metaphors of clothes used in the Bible. And this morning, this morning we begin with this theme, starting over. So come on, play with me, all right? Here we go. Now I'm not actually looking for you to answer back unless you really want to make things interesting. What comes to your mind when I say the phrase, starting over? Think about it. Think about it. Is there anything you would like to simply hit the reset button on so that you could begin again? Is there anything in your life that you wish you could just have a do-over? Right? How about when I say the phrase, this is going to get interesting. How about when I say the phrase, first date? <laughs> Anybody? The one person that laughed out loud, maybe this uh, one's for you, okay? <laughs> Man, I wish I could do my first date over again. I got so nervous, I forgot, to, I forgot to take her out to eat, and we were so hungry, and I just dropped her off at home and left because I was embarrassed. <laughs> I was 17, I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, man. Praise God for Jenny, she had much more grace for me. Okay, how about this one? This one, I picked this one, Steve, because I know the answer to this one. This one is like universal. Okay, is there anything in your life you'd like to start over? Okay, I'm not going to say something stupid like marriage or anything like that, okay? How about, <laughs> how about this, right? If you could start anything over, middle school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's universal. No, no. If you're in middle school right now, your start over becomes in ninth grade, okay? You just get it. Everyone, your peers, everybody will collectively try to forget that middle school ever happened, and everybody gets to start over again together again, okay? This morning, <laughs> no one wants to redo middle school, right? Or did somebody in here peak in middle school and they really want to go back? Uh, Stuart, 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 man. I was, the, I was the king of middle school, man. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so maybe you want to start that over and do nothing different. Just go back and be the same. <laughs> All right, so why, why starting over? Why this phrase? Well, this morning I want to suggest that starting over, one, we see it very clearly in Genesis 3, okay? Instead of God getting angry and making humanity do better, I just began to think of this more. And I know in, 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 I know in the story of Noah, that's where God really starts over. Okay. If for the theology nerds out there, for the Bible lovers like myself out there, it's, it's the story of Noah starting in Genesis chapter 6 where God really starts over. But I think that whole process of beginning again, of pushing the reset button, actually begins in Genesis 3. Let me read what I wrote because I think it's pretty good. I want to suggest that starting over is God's provision for both mercy and grace when everything else goes bad. 
So where is God when everything goes bad? He's at the sewing machine. Why? Because he's starting over. And him sitting at the sewing machine is the very act of provision for both mercy and grace. So what happened to Adam and Eve? If everything created was good and Adam and Eve, they were very good. And we all acknowledge that humanity starts out very good and humanity is to be praised and being human is awesome and all humans are good, very good. You hear me say this all the time. Human beings are great. But what happened to Adam and Eve? Well, what happened is they were deceived. They were deceived to reject the truth that God was loving, to reject that very thing that all of the Bible helps communicate, that God was loving, that God was merciful, and that God was gracious. Instead, they were tempted. They were deceived. They were misled. And they, and, and they as a consequence, misplaced their trust. Evil has one really good definition, and it is distortion. You see, evil is not God, so the only thing that evil can do is distort the truth. It does not have the ability to create. God, God creates. Evil, evil cannot create. The only thing that evil can do is distort. And so the adversary and evil working together can only twist what has been created. They cannot create. So, friend, listen, I've got good news for you. If you're in a perpetual cycle of feeling that you're struggling with the forces of evil, This is a distortion of the truth in which you are and who you are. Evil does not have the ability to run your life. Does it feel like it? Oh, yeah. I've been in the grips of it myself. But the bold claim of truth is God never allows evil to run full course in your life, ever. It does not have that ability. So what does evil do? Well, it mis- misleads us. It misleads us right, you know, right now, the thing that comes to my mind is it misleads us to think that what I just said is not true. That's evil at work. Evil at work will tell you that every scientist in the world disagrees with me, and so faith is false, and that evil will just destroy. That's evil at work. That's it. Evil misleads us to place our trust in something else other than the love and provision of God. Now, I see some of you chatting, so I want to make sure I'm not giving off the wrong impression that I think that science doesn't exist (laughs) or something silly like that. No, 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 no. I'm just talking about small distortions, small distortions of truth to where science and faith, they coexist. They're brother and sister. They help one another. They they live together. It's, It's a beautiful relationship. Science tells us all the time that we need to expand our mind because God is bigger than what we originally thought. Okay, Science is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But where do we see the distorting voice of the adversary in conversations of science and faith? When on one side, it tells us that we can't Listen to science because it doesn't prove every literal word in this Bible. And then on the other side, that we can't say something as mystical as God will provide a way through your depression because it is not scientific. It works both ways. 
I hope I'm not confusing us too much. I should probably, I should probably go on. But what I, what I want to suggest this morning is that we are all in a battle of the presence of the adversary more real than what we actually thought it probably was. And how it works in our life is that it distorts truth for us, small distortions. The devil doesn't have any ability to create a lie, so he distorts truth and makes it a lie. I want to give three examples of where I see this at. And I'm looking, at least for head nod affirmation, to see if there's a couple of you that think maybe I'm on the right target. Evil will always twist the love of God to look like restriction. Okay? Okay, there's a couple of head nods. Evil will always make the commands of God to feel like a trap. So we end up picking which one of the ten we want to honor, and the other ones we say, well, that doesn't have any realistic application in culture today. What evil will do is it will distort the relationship with God to feel idyllic and naive. So that when I mention mental health in the service of faith, it feels like I'm being naive. Right? That is distortion. Right? If God created all things and God is Lord over all things, there's not one thing about the human experience in which God does not have access to, including the creation of this world in ways that line up with scientific uh, experts. Also, that God doesn't also have access to the mental well-being of the human being. The decision for Adam and Eve to act independent of the Father's intentions broke the perfect relationship in the garden. And what did it introduce? Introduce small distortions, right? God's creation was perfect and it was pure, and because evil was introduced... There had to be separation because where God is pure, impurity cannot exist, okay? So there had to be, I get it, I think we have to name that, that the perfect has to be separated from the imperfect. But instead of focusing on the evil nature of human beings to have to be separated from God, instead I want us to take a little closer look at what is revealed next in the character of God. So there has to be consequences, all right? I want that to be clear. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me this morning. Sin creates consequences. Consequences come from sin. When we participate in the active distortion of truth, there are consequences for that, okay? When your spouse says, I love you, I love you, I love you, a million times says I love you, but inside all you're hearing is you're ugly, you're ugly, you're ugly. And so then you decide to act off the voice in your head that says, man, my spouse, everything I try to do, I try to earn my love for my spouse, and my spouse never says I love you. But the whole time the spouse has been saying I love you, I love you. How how often does this happen with parent and children relationships, right? And so then you act out of the voices in your head that you're hearing. What does that do in that relationship? It destroys it. Absolutely destroys it. And I'm not asking for a hand raise, but we've all participated in that, right? We've all been the person that can't hear the truth. 
and evolve than the person wanting to hear the truth. The one perpetrating the distortion and the one affected by the distortion. Growing up as a kid with a parent who loved you but didn't know how to express it. And so what you heard and what you received was, my father does not know that I love him, and my father hates me. But the father just didn't know how to communicate, right? So the father loves, and it's not in every case, but in some cases this is absolutely true. They just don't know how to say, I love, how many people have been involved in a relationship where you could never get the other person to open up and actually tell you how they feel about you? No, no, somebody, okay, so a few people. What does all the things communicated in that blank space, what does that do to a relationship if truth isn't named? It kills it, right? Absolutely kills it. So what happens in the Adam and Eve? Distortion, a false truth is in fake news, whatever you want to call it. It was introduced into the story of God and humanity. Is this what God said? Did God ever say that something as silly as science and faith can't coexist? Is that something that God ever said? But that is something that has been said in some circles of the church community. Why? Because distortion is real. Did God ever say that humanity is always bad, always evil, can never do anything good? No. No, he called you very good. So what I want to focus on here is not the sin of Adam and Eve. Let's just for once acknowledge that they sinned. We all do. Every single one of us does. Forget that. Let's pay attention, Donnie, to God. What does God do? I think when I imagine this story in my mind, what I imagine God doing is very different than the truth I have to proclaim today. I think I imagine God being as big and bold and scary as the angel I imagine guarding the Garden of Eden with a big giant sword, pointing it at me angry. Don't you try to come back in here. <laughs> You're not allowed. I don't know if you get the same sort of image of God guarding the first garden, being angry at us. But God never loses his love or his promise for creation. So when evil happens, we have to pay attention to where God goes. And where does God go? The sewing machine. So the revelation of Adam and Eve's sin had left them knowledgeable and vulnerable to their nakedness before God. And what that did was that produced shame in them. But I want to st I, I stop here and just name this real quick. Shame is not from God. Shame is not an emotion that, that is from God. Shame is a distortion of the truth. Shame and guilt... They are not the same thing. And so where guilt can be productive, the enemy will distort guilt and make you feel like you're the problem. <laughs> shame is destructive. I know we've got a couple counselors in the crowd, right? You don't have to actually say amen because I'm not going to put you on blast, but in your mind I know you're saying amen. Shame is a killer. And shame is not from God. God never intended humanity to live with shame. So I just want to name something. If you're, if you're unsure of if, uh, you know, like, 
all this whole business about the devil and spiritual warfare. And you're like, ah, I don't think that exists. Well, does shame exist? Because that's not the spiritual world God created. Just call it what you want. But this is an act going against the very thing that God intends for you, friend. If you're here today and you're battling shame, I want you to know that's not the voice of God. And in the name of Jesus Christ, get out of here right now. Not allowed where the presence of God is. Shame, not allowed here. Shame is not from God. I think I've made that point clear. The first step for redemption then was to reset. So if shame wasn't from God, then why are Adam and Eve so filled with it? Why are they looking at one another with their little fig leaves? <laughs> Going, oh, you're naked. This is an experience humanity had never had before. Why are they filled with shame if God didn't create shame? Well, because distortion does evil. So the first step for redemption was to reset Adam and Eve's clothes with appropriate garments for the new conditions of life outside the garden. So the scripture that we're hanging on this morning, Genesis 3.21, And Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. This is where I'm going to get preaching. Okay, If you're waiting for the moment where I turn to a velociraptor, it's right now. I'm mesmerized. I'm mesmerized by this picture of God. What do you think God's sewing room looks like anyways? I imagine God taking a deep and patient breath and after surveying the inadequate clothing that Adam and Eve designed for themselves, little fig leaves and strings, he sighs and he says to himself, Oh, man, you guys, this will not do for what I have for you. And so, beginning again, God acts out of mercy and heads to the craft room to sew new garments of grace. So, instead of destroying the lives of Adam and Eve, God starts over in a new environment with clothes able to withstand God's intentions. So, God makes provisions for Adam and Eve to begin again. The whole story of God begins not with anger, but with grace. I want to propose to you this morning. That in the presence of living in distortion, something that all of us do, that where is God when we are living in distorted truths? He's at the sewing machine making provisions for you. Come on now, that's really good. It might have been slow getting there, but that was really good, okay? Ah, The grace of beginning again, or maybe we can just call it the grace of new beginnings. Why? Because God loves us. And God is good, and God's character does not change when the character of humanity does. Okay? God is gracious. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, if we're going to preach, we've got we to introduce this scripture. It's got to be in every Wesleyan sermon. Anyone who belongs to Christ, that is a theological joke. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And in the ultimate beginning again, in the ultimate example of a new beginning, God sends his only son as a kind of a a redo, of a reset of the very first Adam 
So what does Jesus do? Jesus rewalks in the steps of Adam's mistakes and in his body, in Jesus' body, he takes on all the imperfections of disobedience. He takes on all the distortions and through the cross, Jesus buries every last one of those. Jesus buries all of the brokenness that we could ever amass or think of built upon the very deception of the enemy and in return. Three days later, Christ resurrects from the grave. And if you're into this whole clothes talk, he's got new clothes on, doesn't he? The old clothes are piled up, right? And he's got new garments on. I'm telling you, this series is just getting started. You, you want to hear a preacher preach, come back in a couple weeks. And later on, he ascends to the Father, where Jesus sits on the right side. And what are they doing up there together? Through the Holy Spirit, they're giving back to humanity the clothes in which they had always designed for us, the power of clothes that Christ accomplished. So through this power, through these new clothes that we get, we can live like Christ. And we can live with Christ. Wearing the clothes we were always intended to wear. The clothes of pure relationship in the hands of a loving father. Why? Because God loves you. Why are you worthy? Because God called you worthy, friend. No more of this talk that you're not worthy of God's love. That is a distortion. Yes, you absolutely are worthy of God's love. Sin makes you feel that you're not. But you absolutely are because, not because you're so great, but because God thinks you are, period. Shia, I've got great news for you, friend. And it doesn't take any imagination for the people of God to agree with this. You're beautiful. Dude, you are beautiful. Jesus is our new clothes to begin again and again and again and again until we are shaped to look like him. So, Last, last little bit right here. I got to get to this story. Got to get to it. I bet when God goes to sowing in Genesis 3, I believe, picture God, right? Not the angry God. Picture the sowing God as a sewing machine. I believe the sun is right there beside him. I believe the sun is right beside him making provisions for the skins to look just like him. There's this brilliant scene. Anybody ever read Philip Roth's novel, American Pastoral? Okay. There's a brilliant scene. <laughs> that was pretty clear and decisive. Nobody, no, Bonnie? Bonnie, I didn't know. You're the one person today when I thought, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but today when I, put, when, when I, when I had this all finally together, I thought, ooh, Bonnie's going to be the one that knows this novel. Ah, okay. Well, whether you read it or not, I'm going to tell you about it. There's this brilliant scene in the novel, American Pastoral, where the main character is giving a tour of his leather company, of his leather manufacturing plant in New Jersey. At the end of the tour, after a pair of perfectly fitting, handmade leather gloves have been sewn and stitched, customized for the guest, the guest turns to the owner and says, God bless the precise calculators of this world who leave stretch hidden in the width. Amen. We're dismissed. Just kidding. But the, not really. I want you to tell to your neighbor, to your right, God bless the precise calculators of this world. Say that to your neighbor to the right. God bless the precise calculators of this world. 
Now I want you to turn to the left, and I want you to say, after I say it first, who leaves stretch hidden in the width. All right, say that. All right, we're going to say this one more time because this is it. This is the sermon right here. God bless the precise calculators of the world. Who leaves stretch hidden in the width. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> A good glove maker will celebrate the stretch. Sorry, celebrate? I meant to say this. A good glove maker will calculate the stretch and leather necessary for the predictable function of the hand. How do they do this? How does, a, how does a glove maker predict the function of a hand? They do this by hiding the expansion of your hand, hiding the expansion or the stretching of leather in the width of the glove, so that when the fingers expand and contract, the hidden stretch provides the hand freedom to move while maintaining the perfect function of the leather skin. Did you grab that? Did you catch that? The necessary room for movement is built into the vessel, like a baby's pliable skin, like a toddler's flexible frame. A glove maker, a good glove maker, builds the predictability of life into the function of the vessel. So the Father of heaven and earth is the precise calculator who builds stretch into the fabric of our skin so that life can happen without the breaking of the art piece or the shattering of the purpose. So without compromising the integrity of the image which inspired the creation in the first place, our Father loves us and made us with stretch. Stretch without compromise to the masterpiece or to the craft itself. Why? Because God loved you. God wants you to join him with love and everlasting life. God knows that our lives are made for his companionship and love. We weren't made for what bitterness and jealousy and shamefulness does to us. We were made for love. And we were made for God. And we were made for one another. So scene after scene after scene in the Bible, there's a clear commitment by God to shape us into the vessels that can hold His honor. How can you hold the honor of God? Well, you've got to have skin that's able to stretch. The new clothes provided. Come on, y'all. That's really good. The new, and I'm not saying you don't think it's good. I just got to respond. The new clothes provided for Adam and Eve they hide the stretch of the rebellion into the width of God's loyal covenant. Adam or Adam, Caleb, Jared, whoever's going to come with Caleb and Jared. I want us to contemplate on this. We're going to have a song. They're going to play it. They're going to sing it. Do what you need to do. But I really want to know, do you actually believe that for yourself? Do you believe that? That the new clothes provided for Adam and Eve hide the stretch of their rebellion into the width of God's loyal covenant. So I don't, friends, I don't know what it is that you would never tell me you want to start over, but immediately when I said think about what you would like to start over, some of you went right to that place, that very place. 
Do you believe that the rebellion of that moment, whether it's a rebellion that happened to you or a rebellion that you caused, do you actually believe that God built enough stretch into your life to redeem that moment into the picture-perfect masterpiece he has for you? Do you believe that? So like new school years, new clothes, do-overs, resets, starting over. All of these start-overs in our life provide the opportunity for us to grow into the future that God intends. So who is God? God is someone willing to start over, willing to do a do-over, willing to go back to the sewing machine and say, you know what, those old clothes aren't going to work anymore, so we're going to make new clothes for you. In His mercy and in His grace, God sows enough room for you to grow into the character that God intends. A life of relationship and partnership with God. There's nothing. Friends, it's a distortion today if you believe that there's something in your life that can separate you from the love of God. That is not true. The preparations for you and for your union have been made in Christ. New clothes are possible. So I want you to close your eyes. I want everybody to close their eyes. Where do you need to start again? And are you willing today to let the tailor God, the seamstress God, sew new clothes in the areas of your life where you need to begin again? I wonder this morning if we could just be honest with ourselves and ask. Where are we hiding from shame? Where are we hiding beneath the tool of the enemy? Do you believe that God has made provisions to clothe that shame with honor and redemption? If you don't know yet, let me give you a spoiler alert. Friend, God is for you. God loves you. And God is at work right now in the person of Christ sewing new garments for you to grow into. They'll have enough stretch for life, so it's okay if you cuss on the way out of here. Not that you should, but just in case. If you happen to and you get hit by a bus, I believe God's garments stretch big enough to love you. He's working on you. He's including you in his plan because he wants you. He's not waiting for you to launder all that dirt out of your clothes before he's willing to accept you. He's just going to sew you a new pair, and he's going to call it Christ, and he's going to give it to you. So, friends, let's pray now. Just with every eye closed, let's just pray. For some this morning, this has been right where you needed it to be. For others, we'll get it next week. (laughs) But for some, today, right now, You needed to hear that God makes new garments where you spoiled the old ones. That God tailors them just for you. And that it's possible because the Holy Spirit is possible for you to grow into them. And for the mistakes that that have been continual for you, that there's a new day on the horizon where those mistakes are gone by the grace of Jesus Christ because he's built the glove just right to fit you perfectly. There's a new day for you, friends, so I just want to invite the Lord, the Father now, to move amongst us in our hearts and in this space, Lord, to point out to us anything and everything that offends you, Father, and to show us, Lord, not how angry you are at us, but how the garments you've made for us to wear are tailor-fit for our personality and for who we are. 
Father, begin to speak to us right now and to our hearts that we are yours. And we can have you as ours. We can live together just as you intended. Father, you make it possible. and We praise you, Jesus, for that. As we sing about the power of broken chains, I want you to stand with me. If it would make sense for you this morning to ground whatever it is that you're working on into public prayer, I invite you to come pray at the altars. Come use these as a resource to give all yourself to God. And it would make it easier in these big, long rows if we were all standing for people to move at will. So would you stand with me and let us praise the God above who makes new clothes for us.